Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I have a very special guest today here to talk with you about clinicians and burnout and grief and just what clinicians are experiencing right now. Her name is Stephanie Queen. She's SVP. She's a CNO of Air Methods. And Air Methods is the America's leading emergency air medical services. Wicked Top Gun vibes. I'm very excited to have this Maverick on the show. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephanie. Appreciate it. It's an honor. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What does Air Methods do and what's your role at the company? Sure. Um, so Air Methods is a critical care transport company. I think what's really amazing about us are our frontline workers um, who are comprised of pilots, mechanics, clinicians, uh, paramedics, and nurses. And what we do is basically in all across the country, we have 300 plus bases um, in 48 different states. Uh, we try to position ourselves in rural communities. We have hospital partners, uh, EMS and fire partners, police, um, all, all the great things. <laughs> and we basically try to um, you know, provide care for our communities um, where they don't have uh, access to level one trauma centers, um, or, you know, specific stroke centers care that they need in remote communities. And so the beautiful thing for us, I think, is it's very easy to adapt to our mission. Saving lives is easy to attach to, uh, but there's a lot that goes into that. And I'm really excited to be able to highlight today, you know, the cost of what it what it is to, to really provide that care to our, our frontline workers. And, you know, I think a lot has been highlighted um, 
since COVID has has hit with this pandemic, but this topic has been around long before that. And so I, I really am excited to be able to speak to what we do and how we do it. I, I can only you know give the accolades to our, our folks on the front line. I'm just uh, lucky enough to be able to speak on their behalf. So what I do with the company. Truly, <laughs> what a large company and to be all over the country like that, serving these rural communities, the urban communities that really need the help that they could, every possible piece of help that they could possibly get. Um, right. So what is exactly is your role with Air Methods? So I am the senior vice president and the chief nursing officer for our clinical division. And so what that means is I have a very incredible team <laughs> that I've surrounded myself with that have stuck with me. Um, and what we do is we oversee the clinical care inside of the helicopter. And so, wow. you know, all of the care that they give, the patient care guidelines that they abide by, um, in conjunction with medical directors, we have 80 plus across the country. And so I uh, work with all of these brilliant individuals to be able to make sure that our clinicians have what they need um, as far as equipment and, you know, making sure that we are up to up to standard with evidence-based practice and all, all the things. And so, you know, it's not me, it's, it's my team. Um, and I'm surrounded by not only an incredible clinical team, I have some pretty amazing executives that I work side by side with, you know, at Air Methods um, that really support us. So that's kind of in a very large nutshell. Uh, some of what I do, I nurse for almost, um, gosh, I think almost 23 years. And it's been a wild ride. Never thought I would end up where I'm at. Uh, you know, it's an honor, one thing to be in one state, but to be able to really help and oversee care in 48 different states, you know, for those clinicians on the front lines, there's, there's no better job than that. So, Yes. Wow. And to be giving care in a helicopter and one of the most traumatic experiences in someone's life, possibly there obviously in these these dire situations with these patients and you know to to manage care and make sure everything is flowing smoothly i'm sure that's a tall order absolutely it takes a very special person you know this is a I, I say to all of our clinicians often and i've said it throughout my career it's a calling you have to be mm. called to do this type of work um you know it's one thing to provide the care but it's another to i think react quickly how they do um, they have to think quickly react quickly they're at the top of their scope. These, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Top Gun, you know, these guys are definitely an elite workforce um, that are practicing at the top of their scopes, both from a medic side, um, you know, to a nursing side. And then you have our very skilled pilots who are, you know, flying an aircraft with all of this going on in the background. <laughs> oh my, wow. Um, but they, they are very skilled at what they do. And, you know, seeing somebody fighting for their life, it takes a special personality to be attracted to that, um, but not only to do it, but to, to stick with it. And I think that's what I'm excited to highlight, you know, during this podcast today is really what it takes, but the, the, the toll that it takes on these guys and how important it is to highlight, you know, every hug that you give a patient, every support that you give them and the things that you see, it changes you. Wow, I, I can't imagine. So working alongside these clinicians every day, what is the impact of grief and burnout on clinicians, uh, personally and professionally even? How does all of this impact the industry too? Yeah, it's it's heavy. Um, I would say, you know, my entire career, I've been fortunate and it's going to sound kind of crazy, but I've been surrounded by death and dying my entire career. 
And it takes, like I said, a special person, I think, to want to be part of something like that. But I think, you know, no disrespect to any of, you know, academia, I, I think we very much focus on the things that we have to, which are, you know, understanding pathophysiology, how do you take care of these patients, how does the human body work, but a pivotal piece that I think is starting to shift in academics um, is really, how do you deal with what you see? And I know in the beginning of my career, I wasn't prepared for that. I, I didn't understand, nor did I, I really had no idea how that was going to impact me seeing somebody die um, or fighting for their life. And, you know, for me, my majority of my career has been in pediatrics. And so you not only take that, but then you take a child, children aren't supposed to die. They're not supposed to suffer. Um, yeah. And adults alike, right? You're mm -hmm. nobody, nobody likes to see human suffering. And so when you compart, I think you have to compartmentalize that. At least I did in the beginning of my career. And I think that's, you know, I've been studying grief since 2004. Oh, wow. Because mm -hmm. something that I saw within my colleagues, you know, in the beginning of my career, it was, I think, and a lot of healthcare workers can speak to this, it, you know, in a hospital setting was the majority of my career. And, you know, you would take these very ill patients, they would pass, and then you would just, you wouldn't even think about it, and you would take the next one, next admission, next patient yeah. thing. And you really didn't have time to decompress. And that was, again, in the early 2000s. I think we've made great strides. But I think grief on the industry, burnout in the industry is real. Um, you know, this year alone, I think we had some recent stats that I read some from some published journals stated that about 33% of critical care, specific critical care workers are just walking away. Um, and wow. I, I was going to ask, you know, what are the impacts of this burnout and grief that's happening? And clearly people are starting to walk away from medicine altogether. Yep. And I think wow. they're, it's, for me, it's, it's something that I never thought that I would see in my career of just very passionate individuals just saying, you know, I can't do this anymore. And mm -hmm. I think that comes to a, to a tipping point where people reach their breaking point. And, you know, the stakes are high. I think our, the acuity level of patients are, are really intense right now. You know, COVID has definitely, I think, impacted that severely. Um, these are some mm -hmm. of the sickest patients that I've ever seen in my career. Uh, Do you think it's COVID itself or patients putting off care because of concern of getting COVID? Well, that's both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, you know, I think last year, 2020, when the pandemic initially started, um, you had a lot of folks who were, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. And so a lot of people put off um, just seeking care. Um, yeah. you know, we couldn't help it, right? Because they're, they they closed a lot of our, you know, our clinics um, across the country. Some of, you know, your same day surgeries were put off. So those folks that could maintain now can't maintain anymore. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is just they're, they're sicker than they've ever been. And so I think to really answer your question, Grief has a significant impact on burnout. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about compassion fatigue and, and burnout in general, but grief is embedded in there. And mm -hmm. as healthcare mm -hmm. workers, right, we, we fix people. That's what we do. That's what we're passionate about. But if we don't take care of ourselves, eventually you see what we're seeing and it's people walking away. And that's what keeps me awake at night. You know, I, I think that everybody that is in medicine is in it for the right reasons. You know, nobody comes to work to say, you know, I don't want to do a good job today. But when, you know, you're dealing with with a lot of different battles, both, you know, professionally and, and personally, when you're you're not sleeping or maybe you're not taking care of yourself, mm -hmm. they compound. And if you don't talk about what you see, even with another peer to say, you know, I'm having a bad day today. I'm, I'm struggling. Um, it can really take a toll. And I can only speak from personal experience. That's what I dealt with. I didn't realize 
there was a time when I was in critical care, um, walked away, um, kind of create, I was in a leadership role, you know, went in to kind of create a, a step down unit. Um, and I didn't realize how burnt out I was. I used wow. to, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I had no idea. And I think when you're in that environment, that's high intensity, high, uh, everything's, there's just a lot of stakes that are very high when you're working in this environment. Um, I, I had used to pride myself. I would cry once a year. And I was like, and I was proud of that. Oh yeah, I, I can see children die. That doesn't affect me. Let's just take the next one. And then when I actually walked away, it took me about six months to realize that what I was doing and the way I was coping was not healthy. I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, I would give everything I had when I was at work. But then when I got home, I had not, I, I literally, I'll never forget it. I was talking with a colleague and he said something to me that, that really changed my life. And he was like, you know, this day, in, it was an intensivist. And he was like, I do this day in, day out. I give everything that I have. And this was a very respected, you know, uh, colleague and friend. He's like, but you know, when I get home, I have nothing left to offer. Mm, and that's so rough. It's, it's, no, it's not putting on your oxygen mask on yourself. It's putting it on other people. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, sh- I'm out of oxygen. Yeah. I, I can't I, move on. Right. Mm-hmm. Can't even. For the people I love and my friends and family. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that statement that he made, I think really changed a lot of the way that I really needed to take care of myself. Because if I'm going to be a leader, right, in the industry, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be coaching, mentoring, doing whatever I can for teams that I'm leading, how can I do that and take care of them if I'm not taking care of myself? Mm. And so I think, you you know, oftentimes you don't think you need to. And, and I think we as healthcare workers are very good at um, just putting on a, a face. And, you know, in the background, you do have a lot of feelings, I think, specifically within critical care. I've been part of two several events in my career. Oh, wow. Unintentional um, deaths that, you know, were caused by error. Um, that really changed my life. And I think for those, anytime you make a mistake, you know, critical care personalities are very type A. And I'm speaking specifically about critical care because that's that's mm-hmm. the realm that, you know, we're in in, in air medicine. Yes, of course. And this is um, what you're dealing with in the emergency medical services with the air. You know, there's a reason they're in the air flying to get the help they need. So I, it makes sense. Yeah. And error makes in any industry is a nightmare, let alone in emergency medical services like this or emergency care at all. Right. And so I think when, you know, human error is is common, you know, when you look at uh, safety statistics within healthcare, um, that's why we have so much emphasis and focus on creating a just culture so that you can try to, you know, prevent mistakes before they happen. But if you are a healthcare worker who's experienced an error, it's really difficult. And you take it very personal, as you should. Um, but you have to also pull yourself out of it. How do I get through this? Because the likelihood, you know, I speak to our employees here, the likelihood say of something happening to you, Grace, if you were a clinician, um, you know, you come into work every day saying, I'm going to do a great job. Nobody comes into work and says, you know, today I'm really going to mess up. Nobody says that. But when you actually do have an error, it's hard because you have to be vulnerable to say, you know what, I made a mistake today and I need to speak up and say it because I don't want it to happen to Grace. You and I are you know, clinicians, we're both at the top of our scope. We're doing the best we can day in and day out. And so that's where I think, you know, it's the peer-to-peer support. You know, I, I, I think it's mm. easy to say, okay, compassion fatigue, or I, I've been a SISM coordinator in the past, which is called a, you know, critical incident stress management. 
and what they tell you is, you know, you, you need to sleep, you need to do things you enjoy, you need to eat right. And that's all great. But when I make a mistake, I need my peer. I need to have a number one, somebody I trust to go to and say, listen, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. I made a mistake. I don't know how to get through it. Or, hey, I just saw somebody die today that looked just like my child. That's, I think, yeah. what a lot of our crews struggle with, right? Or so anybody. really, it's interesting, too, that as a woman, we often understand the strength that comes through vulnerability, that, you know, it, it sometimes comes more naturally to us just as women. Do you think that being a woman, you know, and a leader in many ways gives you an innate instinct into this? Or you did experience it yourself, you know, you said, and it was hard to be vulnerable. Do you think it's more of a cultural society shift that has to just change over time? Hundred percent. I think you know, females in general. I, I think at least the the amazing mentors I have had in my career, um, you know, have really helped me to do away with the old myth of you know just put on a happy face and just get through it. I think you're strong, boss ladies. Yes. <laughs> I call them. I have one that I work with here at Air Method. Um, you know, I, I think Jalen is our CEO and sets a great example of you know what it looks like to be vulnerable, but also you know, hey, this is important. And I think mm. when you have, you know, leaders within your industry that are also demonstrating, listen, we as females care about this. This is a big deal. Um, I think that that helps to change the industry. And, you know, even with, you know, Air Methods, you know, I, I had a, I have really great mentors um, where I got my doctorate, I went to Vanderbilt. And, you know, I can't speak enough about those amazing women, um, you know, and men um, that really helped to guide. But I, I think this day and age, you have to be the example that of the change you want to see. Yeah. And I think specifically with grief, you have to create a platform for clinicians to say, you know what, I'm not okay. And I think that's the biggest message I want to get across today is it's okay to not be okay. Yes. And, and it's so interesting to me that you had mentors that helped you with this and taught you this and that vulnerability, which is seen as weakness to many people is actually a strength and is something that needs to be um, exemplified at the highest levels, 100%. you know, it's amplified and, 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 and shown how it's done and how it's done well. And I'm sure too, with clinicians, they probably worry about losing their license in certain instances 100%. when they're experiencing burnout and grief. hundred percent. I mean, there's the stakes, there's, there's a lot that plays into it, right? You are coming into work day in and day out to be on your ending, um, at least in our current environment that we're in at Air Methods. You know, these guys are responding to people that are fighting for their life. Mm -hmm. And you have to be on top of your game. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of societal distractions, especially this time of year. You know, the holidays for many are a joyous time, but for others, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of stress. And that's just the holidays. Put on yes. top of yeah. COVID and healthcare and all the things within this political climate that we're in. I mean, there's just so many different things that are distractors. And mm -hmm. so for me, the message to our clinicians has really been take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've had a bad transport or there's just somebody that you've transported that's really, you know, touched your spirit. Oftentimes for me, what it is... Um, you know, I've spent the majority of my career, like I told you, in pediatrics, but a lot of our clinicians struggle with those pediatric traumas that we have, or somebody that looks like a family member. It just triggers something. It can be a smell, mm. it can be all kinds of things. But I think that's when I say to them, if that's triggered something, first of all, talk about it. Say, listen, that was hard. You know, we are we are really trying to work on a peer-to-peer -peer support uh, program here at Air Methods. 
um, and trying to develop, you know, what does resiliency look like? Because that's what they do. They have to bounce back and you have to be ready for the next call. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when you're called to this line of work, um, it's it's hard because you love it, you're mm-hmm. passionate about it. This is what you've been called to do, but it's so easy to just put yourself on the back burner. And over time, if you don't pay attention to those subtle things, like maybe you're just not sleeping as well, or you're irritated, they compile. And for me, that's when I almost completely walked away from healthcare altogether when I was part of a specific Sentinel event that really hit home. And I I thought to myself, I'm a normal leader, I just need to leave the industry. Um, I can't do this anymore. And luckily, I, you know, I had a great team and I have a great husband who really talked me through it and said, no, you need to stick with it. And so that's why I talk about this because I think we all have a story. We all know somebody. Um, I've had colleagues who've taken their own life. um, And that's, you know, that's the message we have to get out to one another is we're here for each other. And I think for me, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a sister. um, I'm a lot of things. But I I think the biggest thing that I want to convey, you know, to the audience today is, Love, love a healthcare worker. <laughs> Give them a hug. Um, I could cry, and it, I do it every time. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, this topic deserves tears because these people who are on the front lines, like yourself and your colleagues, they are risking their own mental health in in the pursuit of saving people's lives, and it's. It's such a shame that that has to be the case, but there's no other way. It's like we need people to do it. We need people to save lives and things happen. But it's just just pretty heartbreaking, but amazing to have a leader like yourself who's experienced what you've experienced say this is not okay. We need to make changes. We need to take over the narrative and change the narrative behind burnout and grief and make sure these clinicians stories are being told and that they're being supported by one another because everyone's dealing with it. Correct. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's okay to say what you saw was, was difficult to see. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some of the things that these guys, you know, they're reacting to, you know, it could be somebody with a stroke. It could be something, you know, a, a multi, you know, gunshot wound individual, it could be a car accident. There's all, it could be a burn. There's all kinds of things that they encounter and they have to be ready for whatever, you know, is coming through. And I, you know, I, I have a, a strong, we have strong military presence um, of a lot of veterans here in the company, um, but my family included. And I think oftentimes what we see, I compare what we see as healthcare workers in critical care, very similar to war zones that soldiers face. Oh, wow. It, wow. Right. You know, you go into a trauma bay or you go into one of our helicopter airframes after, a, you know, say a very messy car accident, there could be blood all over the place. That alone is a visual that you never forget. And I, I think it's those things that you see. Um, it's, it's a war zone out there. And I think that some days that's how it feels. You know, you're, you're going to war, you're going to battle to save people's lives. Um, but you have to recharge. You have to regenerate your spirit. You have to figure out and remember why you do this work because it is stressful. It is hard. You know, it's, it's probably been the most, uh, you know, I, I have this letter and I'll, I, I can always, you know, share it with you, you know, to share with the audience. It's long, so I won't read it because I, or I can read it. You tell me what you want me to do. I'll absolutely put a link to it under this today. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I think that when you have this type of environment, you know, it's, I paused with these long pauses because it's just, it's heart wrenching, but it's so rewarding. Would you like to read the letter? Do you have it with you? I do. You want oh, me to read? Please, please read the letter. We'd like to hear it. All right. Sometimes I cry. So you guys are going to have to just deal with it. But I think this will resonate. And it's so we'll cry along with you, sister. Let's do it. Stop everything. So I I read this to our new hires. I wrote this, um, but I read it to our new employees that come in um, into the company uh, week after week. So I'll just read it. Right. All right. A while back, I had read a letter that addressed how critical care clinicians don't discuss what they do for a living with others to spare the shock and awe conversation. When people hear that you work in critical care or you work with pediatric patients, the response is often something like this. Oh, wow, I could never do that job. The letter resonated with me and caused me to pause and to self-reflect on how I have personally handled or dealt with the things that I have seen over the years in the field that I so dearly love. The letter started off by saying, I know you mean well, but before you cover your mouth, your hand clutched to your chest, or you inhale sharply with shock, before you say the words, that must be so hard. I don't know how you do it. I want to set the record straight. It is hard. It is very, very hard. I come from a military family, and I often compare the war zone I have encountered in critical care to be likely similar to war zones for soldiers. What we see day in and day out changes It has been by far the most excruciatingly, heart-wrenching, most stressful job I have ever encountered through my 23 years in healthcare. With the same heartache I've experienced, it has also been the most rewarding, life-fulfilling, and stimulating job I have ever had. What defines a critical care personality is typically someone who is an overachiever, a multitasker, compassionate, incredibly intelligent, type A, and they're usually very direct communicators. These characteristics define what I've always witnessed to be the best of the best in our healthcare industry. When approached by someone who finds out that you work in critical care, we often attempt to respond to their comments by saying things like, oh, you could do it. Let's not talk about me. What do you do for work? I've also had someone look at me in sheer terror and say, how the hell do you work with dying children day in and day out? You must hate being surrounded by that every day. My response is often something like, well, I guess I would just hate to do your desk job day in and day out. Each of own is my philosophy. Critical care clinicians are unsung heroes well before COVID who go to battle every day. Despite those we can't save, what truly brings us back is the ones we do. Many times I've heard clinicians say that patient will never survive. And weeks later, they either walk out of the hospital or they visit you at your base. And I've really learned quickly, never say never, as a patient will often surprise you. This job will truly pull at your heartstrings. Like I said, it is very hard. Beautiful things do happen in the war zones that we work in. Like I referenced in the beginning, the letter I read stated that they were over softening the blow of what critical care clinicians do. And I, re- I agree with their statement as well. It's time for us to have the ability to say how hard this amazing job truly is and why it changes you. This is really where a lot of the grief comes in and you'll, you'll hear it. Yes, truly. In my time in critical care, I have done the unimaginable. I've witnessed children who were beaten to death by a family member who were brain dead, and I somehow had to still treat the family with respect who is sitting at their bedside who just beat their child to death. I've placed intravenous lines into children, teens, and adults into places you never thought a catheter could go. I've placed probes inside of toddlers' skulls. I've given medication to sedate adults and teens who are unsafe to themselves 
and I pushed so hard on a chest during CPR that it cracked their ribs in a hope to save their life. Not to mention placing other tubes and other various openings in the body. I have helped to breathe for those who couldn't breathe on their own, or I've held a human heart in my hands, cardiac massaging until the family could arrive to say their last goodbye. I've been honored to witness both children and adults take their last breaths. It's odd to say, but those moments are beautiful as birth. I'm not sure I can really explain the bravery of those facing death, children specifically. I've discussed with a seven-year-old that the cancer they were diagnosed with was ultimately going to take their life. And they looked me dead in the eye and said, it's okay, I'm ready. I've also had another teenager who told me that if they could do it all over again, they wouldn't change a thing. This was a paraplegic patient who could no longer walk, but he said this was his way of God leaving a legacy for those behind. These intimate moments are what many don't see when dealing with critically ill individuals or dying patients. I've cried with families as we remove them from life support. I've been a sense of strength for moms, dads, siblings, and family members alike who couldn't hold it together as their most important person in their life was dying or clinging to life. I've walked and worked alongside the broken, myself included. I've hugged moms and dads and sat with them on the floor as we all cried about the fact that we couldn't save their loved ones. I have talked to them, I've held them, and I've stopped them from shaking from tears, myself included. I've also swaddled dead babies and I've carried them to my chest as we walked to the home, as we walked through the lonely halls to the morgue. Every clinical care cl clinician can tell you the harrowing sound of a family scream as they lost a loved one. It's a permanent memory in my mind and it always puts shivers down my spine. I've cried more tears than you will ever know. My car and my pillow could tell you so many stories. Through all the ups and downs of critical care medicine, one thing remains the same. We were never alone and we always had each other. Yes. As we stabilize the spines of patients and we push blood into those who are bleeding out faster than their body could sustain, my team was always by my side. I mentioned working in this environment can also be beautiful. Seeing that patient you never thought was going to survive and come back to your base and say hello and walk into the base is why we do this crazy job. Through all the heartache and the intensity that defines critical care and the moments that we cared for critically ill patients, like I said, one thing has always been the same. We are never alone. My team was always by my side, supporting me, teaching me, helping me, and sharing in the trauma of caring for complete strangers. Over the years, we've saved a lot of lives. Alone, none of this is possible. Together, we help to make the world a better place. I have never been more proud than I am today of where I work and who I work alongside. I am honored to work alongside some of the most brilliant, talented individuals I have ever seen. I may never be able to put into words the trauma of caring for complete strangers, how every heartache that's placed in your hands, every story that touches your soul, every hug that you give to a family does take a tiny slice from your own. When I say this job is hard, it is. I will also never find the words to express how much I respect my team and the work that they do. And that goes for healthcare as a whole. I call them my work family. Nothing will ever do justice to the feelings that I carry with me in my heart. My colleagues are amazing. What we have been through and continue to go through is a gift to be a part of. To care for someone fighting for their life and to have an impact on that life is something none of us take lightly. There has been so much heartache, but alongside that ache in your, in your heart, you smile to yourself knowing good things do happen. So when you hear where we work and what we do, when you call your mouth in shock and say, it really takes a special person to work in a place like that. I want you to know the truth. You're right. It does. 
Yes, Stephanie. <laughs> yes. That is how you change the culture. Yeah. That is powerful. Leading with your story of your patience and then moving into yourself as a patient and humanizing the clinician. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> but that's the synopsis. You know, that's what people don't see. Right. And I think that's been the beautiful thing of COVID is it, it really has highlighted many of our healthcare workers across the industry of what they do day in and day out. But it's it's bigger than that. And I think it's something that we've been doing for so long and it has to be talked about. This is this is why it's special to work in healthcare, to be part of somebody's life. And, you know, I think the thing that struck me the most when I was writing this was these are complete strangers that yeah. you're pouring everything into as you should because it's a calling but it takes a toll and so that's where I commend you know the men and women across this industry but women in leadership leading these types of you know these types of programs if it's in a hospital or like air methods we put a special touch to that to highlight I think the beauty of of, of what these war zones look like because that's what it is and you know, we have to talk about it. We have to say, you know what, today I'm struggling. You know, I tell people here, I've had a bad day. I, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> and I really encourage people to say that because it then allows, if, if Stephanie can say it, I can say it. And it's healthy to talk about it. You have to talk about what you see to be able to cope with it and to still feel. That's the biggest thing that I don't want critical care clinicians across the industry is to not talk about it because you bury it and, it and it gets buried into some scary places. And that's where I think people, it's just hard. You don't talk. How do you think medical schools could better prepare students for this? I mean, doctors, nurses, you know, anyone who would be working in these settings, uh, even the people doing the imaging. I mean, I'm sure that it, it could be very impactful for them as well. Do you feel like there is maybe a missing piece in, in some of the medical education? Do you feel like it's covered but not shown from other physicians and so that's why it doesn't stick? Or what do you think about that? You know, I do. I I think it's obvious, you know, when you're talking and you're going through if it's med school or if it's, you know, nursing school or medic school, whatever, you know, healthcare platform you're in, you're learning about the human body, you're learning about trauma and cancer and all these different diagnoses. But I, I, I don't think that we talk about, well, when you see this, it's hard. When you see a patient die for the first time, it's hard, right? And that's okay because you're human. And it, when it's not hard, that's when there's a problem. <laughs> you're a machine. You're, that's, that's, I think, initially how I handled the beginning of my career. I was a machine. I mean, I just, I took admission after admission after admission. And I just buried, buried, because I had to, I was in like a survival mode. But in a, initially I thought it was okay. You know, like I told you, I would pride myself on crying once a year and it was never planned. But that's when I really started noticing that it wasn't healthy because like I would get home and my husband can definitely speak to this. I would get home and I felt, I have three kids and I would walk in the door and I felt like my children were like dogs. They were just like, <sighs> sitting there waiting for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even have anything to offer you. I, I have nothing left. And that's when my husband kind of took me aside and he's like, this is not healthy. And it took somebody that loved me to also be vulnerable because 
right? It's it's not easy to be like, hey, are you all right? And that really taught me to reach out to a lot of the people that I am leading to say, are you okay? You know, that's usually the first thing I start with. If somebody has an outburst or somebody, you know, has this passionate whatever of how they're reacting that's somewhat out of the norm or an outburst, my first question I say is, you know, you shouldn't have acted like that. No. Are you okay? That's what mm-hmm. I usually ask. Are you all right? Are you doing well? It's okay? so true because anger is a secondary action. It's something right. else is leading it. So right. And grief is messy. You know, you grief is messy. Right. Historically, there's this, you know, the five stages of grief. And, you know, they do this beautiful, you know, bell curve. No, mine's all over the place. <laughs> mine's like a, a ball of yarn that, you know, you threw up in the air and then you're trying to put back together. That's kind of our human spirit. Well, also, most people have one traumatic event, maybe a couple traumatic events, and then they work through the grief and it's 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 messy, but but right. it's so different when every single day you're experiencing traumatic event after traumatic event after traumatic event. Correct. And if you don't, deal with that, mm-hmm. the, the outcomes are awful. You know, 55% of nurses right now are saying they would never go back into nursing. It was a study I just read, 55%. And, you know, this year specifically within critical care, you've got people just walking away and they're like, I just, it's not worth it for me anymore. And that's where, like I told you, that's what keeps me up at night is their spirit, making sure that, you know, we're giving them the tools and the support they need to, you know, handle the things they see, because I'll tell you, Within air methods, there's nobody that I would rather prefer. You know, they they can transport my kids, my family, me. Um, I trust them wholeheartedly, and because they're the best. But we also have to take care of the best. You know, you, you have to take care of them and make sure that you know you can put those those tiny slices back in. Um, it's just that's how we get over this is by talking about it. And I think the more people I've, I've given this talk. You know, I used to call, I, I do a, a talk called Good Grief, you know, stems from Charlie Brown. Um, I've done it a couple times and it's very much resonated uh, with, with the audience that I've given it to. And um, I think that's my hopes for today are, you know, really highlighting, you know, women in leadership today, it's not easy. Um, I think what we do, it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, but when you're passionate about it and this is something that you love, it, it comes out in the right ways, right? Mm. And I, I think that's where, that nurturing nature, um, you know, that I used to kind of not have because I was so burnt out. I'm very in tune to taking care of myself and creating that work-life balance. Work is always going to be there. Um, you know, I used to miss big things with my family. Um, you don't get those back. And so yeah. I think we really tell people work is always there, right? Like I love my job, you know, <laughs> my job is the best. But I also, to be at my best, I have to take care of myself and not miss those moments. And that's where the shift in leadership and, and just overall human compassion needs to, needs to change. In an ideal world, what does the future look like for good grief in medicine? I think good grief in medicine has to be, um, you make time for what's important. And that is one thing that cannot be put to the side. You have to talk about it within this current healthcare environment where, you know, stress is at an all-time high. Uh, patients are sicker than they've ever been. You have to make this part of your curriculum. You have to make this part of your business plan um, to really make sure that you're taking care of your own. Um, it's a, you know, it has to be part of your retention strategy, has to be part of your engagement. 
Um, and I think the way that you really change that is having your frontline workers on these work groups developing the protocols of what support looks like. And that's what we're currently doing here is, you know, I think I know what they need, but I need also their involvement in 2021 in the helicopter airframe, right? I'm not doing that day in and day out. I need them telling me this is what's helpful for us. This is what we need. And so kind of, I think, you know, I can only speak for what we're, some of the pieces we're looking at, but, you know, what are those triggers uh, for the transport? It's typically pediatric patients. It's very traumatic things that you see. Um, you know, if it's a scene accident and there's, you know, bodies just laying everywhere, that alone, that's impactful, right? You see somebody that's, and I'm just going to, I'm going to say it, you see somebody that's decapitated on a highway, you can't unsee it, right? Yeah. So how do you help them process what they saw, that it's not normal, it's okay for that to impact you, you can cry, you can let it out, please let it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we have to support one another. So I think how you shift it is you talk about it. You know, mm -hmm. Renee Brown is my hero. Um, mm -hmm. I talk to her person to person. I mean, she's, she's also changed my life. She doesn't know it, she's changed many, but mm -hmm. I think she, you know, her highlights to, to grief and vulnerability um, have been so impactful. And it, it gives people a platform to say, you know, it's okay. And she gave a great, great example in one of her books. And she talks about basically this well. And it's, I think it's a great example that I can try to illustrate is you look in a well and say one of your colleagues is down there. It's dark, it's cold, it's kind of like depression, right? You look down and you're like, oh, how you doing down there? There's a difference between empathy. And mm -hmm. When you're looking down there and you're like, okay, well, start down there. Looks pretty cold. Sorry, it's so scary, but see you later. Good luck. Good luck to you. It's another thing to actually climb down in the well and say, mm. listen, I don't have the right words to say. This is, I think, where we struggle as healthcare workers because we want to fix it. Can't mm. fix it. But what you can do is you can sit down there and say, listen, I don't know what to say. I don't have the right words. I know how this impacted me. I don't know how it impacted you, but I'm going to sit next to you and I'm right here. That's what support looks like in 2021 moving forward. It's sitting next to somebody, not saying, you know what? Oh, just go to sleep or, oh, go for a run. It'll get better. It may, it may not. But knowing that you can just sit with them in their grief or whatever they're dealing with, that's what helped me when I have dealt with many different things. And so I, when Brene kind of highlighted that, I was like, oh my gosh, she hit the nail on the head. Because you need someone sitting alongside of you saying, you know what? Me too. Mm. Me too. I, I felt that way. I don't feel that way today, but I'm here for you. And it's, I've, I've sat with colleagues just, we've literally just sat there in silence and cried together. No words. And that is power. That is so impactful, Stephanie. And thank you for your courage because oh. approaching it in this way is so courageous and is what medicine needs and it's what patients need. It's critical, the work that you're doing there at Air Methods and with the providers that are, are, are there working in the emergency medical services. It truly is critical. So thank you so much for your leadership in this. Hey, you know, for me, it's an honor. Um, I love critical care medicine. Fell in love with it. I was initially, it's funny, I, I tell people all the time in the beginning of my career, I said three things. I said, I'll never be in leadership. I will never take care of children and I will never do critical care. 
because all three <laughs> and literally all of those things that's what I'm doing so the biggest thing i can tell this audience is never say never mm-hmm. um you know really follow your gut with with where you're being guided um you know for me it's i've always done what i didn't think i could do um and that's I, i'm doing the work that i truly feel god has intended me to do and it's it's not easy uh, it's taken a toll. I've been confused along the way. You know, oftentimes I think even as leaders, we talk about imposter syndrome. That you're like, why am I doing this? What am I doing? I'm not doing this right. And the best thing that I can tell you at the end of the day is I think when you just try to do the right thing at the end of the day, I have these four rules. And everybody in this company, uh, they know them. Um, at least I've, I've talked to all of our new hires about them. My leadership team knows them, but they're so. Oh, I'm so excited to know them now. And I'm sure our community is as well. My four rules, which I, I did have an intensivist that also kind of had these, she called them her specific rules, and she was an amazing doc. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to steal like an artist. There's this book called Steal Like an Artist, but it's amazing. But I kind of adapted my own rules. So the four cool rules that I have are tell the truth, if you make a mistake, own it, do the right thing, and be nice. Hmm. Those four pivotal simple rules at the end of the day take vulnerability because if you make a mistake and you have to own it and speak up and tell the truth and at the end of the day do the right thing so that you can make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else it's hard oh yeah right especially in medicine where you can lose your job if you know depending on how it goes and so you have this kind of sub fear but knowing no i can speak to the normalcy of how hard this is and that will keep me from making errors is impactful and that's, I mean, that's the safety culture and the just culture that we're creating at Air Methods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, safety is our state. It's all things encompasses everything we do here. Everybody comes home safe. That's our mission. Everybody comes home safe. Everybody. And so to be able to provide that care and that vulnerability, we have to set the example. I have to set the example to my clinicians out in the field to say, listen, if you've made a mistake, it's okay. Mm. You need to speak up. And we're going to look at the root cause of why it happened, right? That's the beauty. That's based medicine, and that's across the industry within healthcare. Continuous improvement, evidence-based, you know, medicine moving us forward. That's the focus, and it's always at the end of the day about making sure our patients get the best possible chance at life. Yeah, and that's what we do here, right? What yeah. better thing to be a part of? But it's it's hard, and it's hard to make a mistake, and that's again where the grief all comes in. Mm-hmm. You say to yourself, "Well, gosh." Do I have to say something? Is mm-hmm. somebody going to judge me? Or are they going to think that I'm stupid mm-hmm. because I made a mistake? It's like, no, you need to do this for yourself and for the people around you and for your patients. Perfect. And that's, I think, where we've made great strides here um, as leadership teams across, you know, all the different leaders across the company. That is that is our charge. We are how you change this and how you fix it. It's, it's a just culture. It's supporting the human spirit, but it's, it's, also putting those pieces back in. And that's for me as a, as a female leader, that's what I'm drawn to do. I am drawn to put the pieces back for my people and to, to relate to them knowing that I've been there. You know, I, I've made some pretty significant mistakes in my career. Um, and it's not easy to talk about, but why I continue to do it is because I've had people say thank you. Thank you for saying that because I've been there. I've had those dark times. And for me, my team and my family pulled me out. Stephanie, you are an absolute powerhouse. 
where can our listeners find you online? Anywhere. No. <laughs> I can attach an email. Um, happy, you know, happy to, to provide that. Um, you know, happy to speak anywhere um, to anyone. I, I think that, you know, for me, I, I really like to partner and share um, anything that I have studied, you know, over the years that contribute to, you know, healing the human spirit. And that for me, um, you know, I've de dedicated from those sentinel events that I've been a part of, I've dedicated the rest of my career to quality and safety, um, you know, to really provide our clinicians with the best um, resources that they can have. I, I, I can go on and on and on. So happy. fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephanie. You know, I really appreciate this critical conversation on this very important topic. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to share this far and wide and get it wherever we can to, and get your message out there. Um, it's, it's so critical right now, more than ever. Uh, quick question before you go. Did you happen to bring some tea with you today? Sure do. While we're spilling the tea, <laughs> I love your Yeti. Does it actually keep things hot and cold? Yes, it does. I love this cup. I, I, I absolutely love it. It stays warm all day. So, and I continuously refill. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Are you a coffee person? Oh. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. A uh, Dunkin' or Starbucks or any other? So we, and you're, you're going to laugh, um, but we, we drink black rifle coffee. Um, mm. It's spectrum supported. Um, really, I love all coffee, but we have a subscription to them. And I make my colleagues laugh really hard because of some of the names of the coffees. And yeah, it's, they're pretty intense, but <laughs> they keep me going. So black rifle coffee. That's amazing. That's right. the name of it. Yes, Black Rifle that's, Coffee. That's fantastic. We'll definitely yeah. have to have people check that out. That's awesome to support the veterans in They're addition not, to the amazing I, work you're doing. To say that. <laughs> no, I know it's too good. Too good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Stephanie. Um, and thanks for joining us, folks. This is Hit Like a Girl podcast. You can find us on the website, now on YouTube. Uh, for more esteemed guests like this one today, you can check us out. And I hope all of you have an amazing day forward. Cheers. Cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.